Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Ernie Marshall, M.D. He's the author of Faraway Places, Vice Admiral Charles Emery Rosendahl and the Navy's Airship Program. Following World War I, a war between Japan and the United States was inevitable, and to protect American shores, the Navy needed a craft capable of conducting surveillance of the vast Pacific Ocean and American coastline. Surface ships were too slow, and the Navy had too few of them, and airplanes lacked the range. Borrowing from German technology with Zeppelins, the Navy turned to airships, which had a range of thousands of miles. This book is a history of that time, which describes advances in naval aviation and internal conflicts within the Navy Department. Much of the history is guided with the detailed, unpublished memoir of Vice Admiral Charles Rosendahl. M. Ernest Marshall, M.D., is an award-winning author-historian whose research focuses on the U.S. Navy during the World Wars and interwar period. His book, Herbert V. Wiley, A Career in Airships and Battleships, was the recipient of the prestigious Rear Admiral Samuel Elliott Morrison Award for Naval Literature. His books are noted for their depth of research and his fluid writing style. Dr. Marshall, welcome. You're very much glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, the topic of Zeppelins and airships fascinates me, and I and no, it's not because as like a 12-year-old I picked up a Led Zeppelin album. <laughs> I think it's more about the uh, interest in uh, in history and warfare and, and this period of time sort of when this technology was peaking in the 20s and 30s. It, it was, um, there was a window of um, time before jets, before jet airplanes, before satellites, uh, before other technologies came along. And it's a fascinating technology because it's, it's a beautiful... Um, I always found the airships to be just an amazing thing to look at. And and maybe as well as a kid, I remember the, I don't know what year it came out, but the Hindenburg movie came out and I saw that too. So tell us a little bit about these airships, um, you know, why they were important and sort of what their their uh, range of use was. Right. Well, there's always been a, a certain air of romance surrounding the airships. Uh, when one is overhead, people on the ground have no choice but to stop, get out of their cars, and gaze upward. Uh, that romance never left the airship uh, uh, phenomenon. But uh, it all started in 1900 with the fun Zeppelin uh, flying his first Zeppelin. Uh, and uh, then he turned them over to the uh, German <clears throat> uh, Navy and Army for use uh, for those purposes. And it was during the First World War that uh, it was clear that we're going to go to war with Japan when this First War was over. And the Navy was being handed the job of conducting surveillance of 60 million square miles of Pacific Ocean and 95,000 miles of shoreline. But they couldn't do it. They had no vehicle uh, that could do this, as you've just uh, mentioned. But they had been watching uh, the way the Germans and the British used their airships during the First World War. And they were aware that uh, airships could travel for thousands of miles on a single tank of fuel uh, 
They could fly higher than airplanes. They could remain aloft longer than airplanes. And they could even hover over targets, which is something airplanes could not do. So the Navy thought, this is the answer to our problem. We need to develop uh, an airship program. And in 1920, the uh, uh, Congress made it possible by giving funding for that. Um, they funded the uh, Naval Air Station Lakehurst in Lakehurst, New Jersey, as the base for these operations and put money in there for building the first American airship, which was the Shenandoah, and purchased the second one from Britain that was about halfway finished. That was the R-38 that cr <laughs> crashed on its fourth and final trial run, uh, leaving the Navy short an airship. But uh, then uh, she got another, the Navy got another one from Germany. That's a long but interesting story. And the second airship then that the Navy had was the Los Angeles, followed by the Akron and the Macon. The Germans produced, the estimates vary, but about 90 Zeppelins during World War I. Mm -hmm. During its entire history of airship development, the Navy only had four. And most of the time, they only had one that was operational at the time. So in the background, one has to question whether the Navy ever gave a, gave a fair shot at uh, airships uh, for their use. But that's the way it all went down, and it was all governed by funding, as you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, go ahead, Lauren. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I'll, I'll just go back to World War One for a little bit, and then we'll leave that behind. But there, it just personally come across, and we're talking about the German airships and 90 of them, and I was stunned uh, as I was collecting postcards and stamps and things about, you know, Zeppelins. And there are postcards and artwork that show these Zeppelins dropping bombs over England. And it just seems like so weird. You see this Zeppelin and then these biplanes trying to get up and get to them and they can't. And uh, it, it's just such a weird moment in history when that technology and as you're implying, there's some interesting artwork that came out of these uh, flights. But the uh, uh, and there was a lot of talk about the Zeppelin scourge as they were bombing uh, London. But after the war ended, both the Germans and the British uh, did an assessment of whether the Zeppelin scourge had affected the outcome of the war or not. And both concluded that it had not. Yeah, uh, It was recognized that the Zeppelins had two uses. One was uh, reconnaissance especially on over the oceans, the North Sea and the like in the Atlantic. But the other one was as a uh, weapons platform from which they could drop bombs. Uh, that wasn't highly effective because the, uh, of the weight of bombs. The bombs were too small. The explosive uh, power was too little. But the main uh, use that uh, surfaced for Zeppelins was in reconnaissance. And it got so good that if a U-boat was uh, sighted in the English Channel from a blimp or a Zeppelin, it had almost no chance of surviving and escaping. That's how good the uh, search was. So the Navy was interested primarily in the reconnaissance aspects of uh, uh, lighter-than-air flight, uh, although they continued to toy with the idea of using them as offensive weapons. Wow. Well, very interesting that it, it wasn't effective, but that art sure makes it look uh, scary. But we got to take our first break. We're talking to Dr. Ernie Marshall, the author of Far Away Places. We'll be right back. 
Sunbury Press Books brings you the history of Pennsylvania. Check out Lancaster's Golden Century, 1821-1921 by H.M.J. Klein, Donald Kent's The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania, or the Keystone Tombstone series written by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find works of history, fiction, and nonfiction from the Keystone State. I'm back with Dr. Ernie Marshall, the author of Faraway Places, Vice Admiral Charles Emery Rosendahl and the Navy's Airship Program. And I, I think it's about time we start talking about Rosendahl, because I've been so focused on the Germans in the early days of this technology. But uh, you'd mentioned Lakehurst, and so tell us about Lakehurst, Hindenburg, and Rosendahl, and then we can transfer to the Navy in World War II. But it must have been pretty traumatic to see the Hindenburg um, go down as it did. Right. And uh, jumping forward to the Hindenburg for just a moment, I think you'll have the best description of the crash of the Hindenburg at Lakehurst that I've seen anywhere. And the reason is uh, because I have uh, Charles Rosendahl's uh, unpublished uh, memoir. He was in command of Naval Air Station Lakehurst when the Hindenburg crashed. And he was the most knowledgeable observer present there he was there every moment of it and uh, recorded it in great detail it's almost spine chilling and this is also augmented by three photographs that you included in the book uh, from an american who was on the hindenburg when it crashed uh, peter balin uh, there are three images that are so timely for the crash of the hindenburg that uh, my spine chills every time I look at them. One is the uh, shadow of the Hindenburg being cast on New York below as she passes over it on the way to Lakehurst. And then you see from the Hindenburg a picture of the giant hangar number one as she's approaching the hangar. And then finally, you're close enough that Balin got a picture of the ground crew putting out the landing flag that's a target for the pilot of the ship. And this happened only moments before uh, the ropes were dropped and the ship burst into flame. Wow. I have not seen these published anywhere until this book. Wow. Wow, that's great to know that we're publishing them. So did Balin survive? Oh, yes. He uh, took the film out of his Leica camera, put it in his pocket, and then at the right moment he jumped from a window and landed on the loamy soil of the new air station and was not injured. His uh, camera was destroyed, but the film survived. Wow, that's wonderful. Meanwhile, there's a reporter out there somewhere saying, oh, the humanity, <laughs> watching this <laughs> thing come in. We actually uh, went to that, I forget that gentleman's name, but we included him in a Keystone Tombstones book, uh, my co-authors and I, another book um, about that reporter and his life. But uh, very amazing moment in American history, one of the iconic moments of disaster. And we've had, unfortunately had many since then. But um, What you'll see in, in, in my book also is how the rumors started that the Hindenburg was uh, sabotaged. Hmm. Uh, right, I mean, just moments after uh, the, the whole wreckage landed on the ground, uh, a member of the uh, German crew, an officer named Fittman, sought out Rosendahl and told him, that just before they left Germany, they had been told that there was a uh, uh, plot to destroy the Hindenburg on that flight. 
Now, the captain of the Hindenburg was uh, Max Proust. He did not know. Uh, there were only two people on the flight who knew about that, but he wanted Rosendahl to know. Uh, and Rosendahl never shook that thought. And uh, for the rest of his life, he would think about the uh, Hindenburg, but he always come back to uh, sabotage as a probable cause. As you know, there's no proof one way or the other. Right, right. What's your opinion? <laughs> to put you on the I spot. Been, <laughs> no, no, I have thought about this a lot, and I've read the uh, published opinions of many others. Uh, I do not think it was sabotage. I think it was a rare event that had only happened a few times previously with airships. The, I think it's the CNMO's fire, the uh, static charge that was on the, always on the surface of an airship. And she must have been leaking uh, hydrogen. Remember, she's using hydrogen as lifting gas, not helium, the way the Americans did, but leaking uh, hydrogen from uh, someplace near the uh, uh, rear fin. And uh, this uh, static electric charge uh, ignited the hydrogen, and that's where the fire uh, came. And uh, she went down. It, the, it took... Uh, from the moment the landing ropes were dropped from the ship to the ground crew, it took 32 seconds for the Hindenburg to burst into flame and crash. Wow. That's, that's almost an explosion more than a fire. Right. 32 seconds. Right. And uh, it's amazing that uh, so many people lived on the ship, and there's some great stories uh, in, in the book about people who did survive the crash. And there's a picture of Jean Rosendahl, uh, Admiral Rosendahl's wife, uh, actually watching the ship burn. Uh, he spoke very highly about that image and, and expression on her face. And uh, once again, that came to me by a very special source. Wow. But... Uh, the he was impressed with the video and and the still photographic evidence of the crash and burn he thought that the effect it had on the light of the air program was not very good because he said every time somebody wanted something exceptional or sensational to publish they would, they would haul out the hindenburg crash and talk about it and uh, give an unfair uh, slant on the lighter-than-air industry. Yeah, but as you said, the Germans were using hydrogen. Uh, right. It, we Americans were using helium, were we not? Right. So that's... The, the, now, the, the interesting thing, too, is the Germans had a long and successful run with hydrogen. They had the uh, Graf Zeppelin making multiple trips across the Atlantic using hydrogen, and uh, millions of miles traveled without a single death. Yeah. Uh, now, the uh, Dr. Hugo Eckener, who started running the Zeppelin company after the death of von Zeppelin, was trying to get hydrogen from the U.S., but it was controlled uh, by Congress. There was a committee that controlled whether it could be sold to foreign powers, because there were many people who thought uh, helium could be used as a weapon, uh, putting it onto airships. And... Uh, to sell it to a foreign power, this committee had to give uh, full 100% approval. But there was one guy named Ickes, uh, Secretary of the Interior, who really believed that it was a weapon and always vetoed the vote when it came up. 
the interesting thing about this is that Icky sent a vote only when the subject was helium and and on no, no other subject matter. So it was kind of a powerful position there. Wow. So the uh, Germans never got helium from us. Um, interestingly, just before uh, Germany invaded Poland on uh, September 1, 1939, helium had been discovered on the border between Germany and Belgium. But because of the outbreak of war, uh, they never had a chance to develop that. I see. And, of course, there was no place for airships in the skies over Europe in a modern war. Right. So, Yep, we got to take another break. We're talking to Dr. Ernie Marshall, the author of Faraway Places. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. Releases of interest include The Class Assignment is Murder by Carolyn Kleinman, Dead Man Who Walks Away, Parts 1 and 2 by Herbert Dean Ely, or The Immigrant's Wife by J.B. Brooks. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Dr. Ernie Marshall, the author of Faraway Places, Vice Admiral Charles Emery Rosendahl and the Navy's Airship Program. And we were just talking about helium versus hydrogen, but, you know, the whole trauma after the Hindenburg. Now we're getting into World War II, and Rosendahl wants to have an airship program. How did we do once we got into the World War II era? Well, Rosenau never got his giant rigid airships of the Zeppelin type, but uh, when the war broke out, uh, the uh, blimp business uh, really blossomed. Uh, there were many, many blimps created and built and distributed around the uh, perimeter of the United States, and they did a very good job at uh, surveillance for submarines and surface ships. Uh, and, and the U.S. only lost one blimp. Uh, it's an odd story, but uh, a blimp got into a gun battle with a U-boat that was on the surface. I mean, instead of running away, the uh, captain of the blimp decided he was going to fight the U-boat. <laughs> with and, bullets uh, coming at him? Is, wow. Uh, bigger than bullets. These yeah. were deck guns on the uh, submarine. Mm-hmm. The uh, It was off the uh, east coast of Florida. And uh, the deck guns brought down the uh, uh, the blimp. Uh, but the part of the uh, pro- part of the issues that would be developed in, in my book uh, deal with how the navy was being run. Uh, Admiral William Moffat was the first uh, secretary of uh, was first uh, co- uh, commander of uh, naval air service. And he had in his uh, area of responsibility to both the uh, airships and airplanes. Within his organization, there were far more uh, advocates of airplanes than airships. So he was battling with them constantly for uh, what funding they could get for development of airships versus airplanes. Now, uh, Moffat was a big proponent of airships. He loved flying on them. Uh, and he would ask for a ride any time he knew that one of the airships was leaving uh, Lakehurst and going on a night cruise. And it was on one of those uh, episodes that uh, the USS Akron uh, was uh, destroyed in a very strong storm over the Atlantic and crashed, uh, and, and Moffat died there. Uh, after Moffat died, uh, uh, Ernest Duck, uh, Admiral Ernest King became the uh, uh, head of the Bureau of Aeronautics, 
that he had so many things uh, he had to take care of that uh, Rosendahl became the man who was on point to continue uh, developing the airship program. And he spent the rest of his life battling uh, for support from the government. And he was somewhat embittered at the end of his life that he could never get the government to come around. Now, uh, if I may, you said World War II. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, Rosenthal believed that if, he had some, if the Navy had had some airships out over the Pacific at the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, Admiral Nagumo's uh, uh fleet would have been easily picked up, and that, would never, that attack on Pearl Harbor would never have happened. Uh, he became obsessed with Pearl Harbor after the war, and, uh, of course, after the war, we learned the details of uh, Yamamoto and Nagumo's plan to attack Pearl Harbor. Nagumo was under strict uh, orders if he were if his ships were sighted uh, by December 6th or before, he was to turn around and go back home. If not, to go ahead with the attack. And uh, there were no ships or aircraft out in the Pacific when Pearl Harbor was attacked that could have detected the Japanese fleet. But doing the math, the Rosenberg, it's only conjecture, of course, since it didn't go down that way, but conjecture uh, is that uh, uh, Nagumo never would have gotten past uh, airships. Is the Akron and the Macon, by the way, not only were they big airships, but they carried, they were like uh, uh, flying aircraft carriers. Each one carried four small airplanes that they could launch and recover while in air. They could have four airplanes in the air 24 hours a day and uh, with them spread out uh, laterally from the airship, they had a very wide scouting front and they had the mathematics of this thing down to a science. But uh, it, it never was tested in reality. Wow. You, you just put in my mind uh, an alternate history where Rosendahl gets his way, the airships are out there, the planes are flying around, they see the <laughs> fleet, the fleet sees them, the Japanese turn back. So how, well, does, how does World War II get started? What happens? <laughs> well, I gave, actually, I have an answer for you. I gave yeah. a lecture to a group of uh, history types uh, a few months, well, maybe six months ago, and they said, so you're saying that if uh, Rosenthal had had uh, an airship, that uh, the World War II not, would not have happened for us? Of course, that's naive. Right. Because the original uh, target, uh, and even into the closing days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, some of the senior members of the Japanese uh, Admiralty were talking about changing the the, uh, the target from uh, uh, Pearl Harbor back to Midway. And Yamamoto said, "You do that, then I'm taking all of my uh, all of my officers, and we quit." Uh-huh. So they gave Yamamoto, Yamamoto his way, and they went on to uh, uh, to attack Pearl Harbor. So no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have changed the outcome as far as going to war or not. It would have just simply changed the target. Right. Is my feeling. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it also maybe changes some of the uh, psychological aspects of it, like the anger. That I I don't know that American citizens would be as upset if a few Marines on uh, the Isle of Midway were attacked versus the naval the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. So. Um, I think there was far more emotion associated with Pearl Harbor than yes. there would have been because, you know, Midway was basically a collection of little small islands that had nothing right. on it but a, a military air base. 
But a more interesting thing to me is uh, why was the fleet in Pearl Harbor in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, Admiral James Richardson was commander in chief of the Pacific Fleet, he told uh, Roosevelt that he thought the fleet should be taken back to California because the Japanese knew that we were not ready for war. Uh, you know, when you send a battleship to war, you don't just send the ship out into the ocean. You need a whole train of ships to support it. And the Japanese knew that train of ships did not exist at Pearl Harbor. But if the fleet had gone back to the coast of uh, California, they would have had the full train of ships they needed yeah. and, and other support to go on an, uh, an aggressive uh, approach in the Pacific. Uh, uh, Roosevelt insisted that he thought that the fleet at Pearl Harbor was sort of a deterrent to anyone coming from uh, the Far East who might want to attack us. Now, I have wanted, and I'm never going to know the answer to this, but uh, I would like to know if Roosevelt ever expressed any regret after Pearl Harbor happened that uh, that he did not move the fleet. Uh, well, you know, there's always that lingering question, why weren't the aircraft carriers there? That's just one of those moments in American history where the means of victory in the next big battle was cinched because they weren't there to be destroyed that day. So, yeah, we're we're just about out of time, Ernie. We could go on and on about this. And a lot of questions that we still don't know about these times. But I think the whole Zeppelin airship era is uh, is a fascinating topic, and I'm thrilled that we have. Uh, some images here that are being published for the first time, and certainly Rosendahl's diary as a primary source. Anything you'd like to close out with in the last minute? Well, just, uh, you know, there was a little short afterward by uh, Dan Grossman, who's a dear friend of mine. He's also an expert on uh, aviation history and aviation disasters. Um, And he is on the inside of uh, what is a modern uh, effort to re, uh, revitalize the use of uh, lighter than aircraft. So he gives a very short uh, description of uh, how uh, the uh, the history of the airships may not be over yet because there are at least three large companies, uh, two in California and one in England, are trying to revive uh, uh, lighter than aircraft for commercial purposes. Well, I would love to ride on one if there was a uh, commercial flight. <laughs> well, you, you can go to Friedrichshafen now and take a ride on a miniature Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, it will be, uh, it's costly, but you can do it. Uh, I'll have to check that out. Well, we're out of time. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Ernie Marshall, the author of Faraway Places. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.